0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
0: from the ted family of podcasts this is design matters with debbie millman for 15 years debbie millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do how they got to be who they are and what they're thinking about and working on on this episode abby wambach and glennon doyle talked to debbie on zoom about love career and mental health
2: Well, I don't like calling myself mentally ill. It feels like mentally ill makes it seem like I'm about to get better. I am not, Debbie. In
1: 2009, Glennon Doyle was married with three children, and she started writing a blog called Momastery. She wrote a book that became an enormous bestseller. But on the start of her tour for book number two, a memoir about the dramatic destruction and painstaking reconstruction of her marriage, her life changed dramatically. She met Abby Wambach. Abby Wambach is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, FIFA Women's World Cup champion, and six-time winner of the United States Soccer Athlete of the Year Award. She has also written two best-selling books and has a third on the way. Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle are now married. They join me today from their home in Florida to talk about their lives and careers before and after they met. Abby and Glennon, welcome to this very special episode of Design Matters for the New York State Writers Institute and the University at Albany Speaker Series.
2: Mm. thank you oh,
1: we are gosh. so excited to be here and very excited to meet you Debbie yes very okay. excited to meet you too and my wife Roxanne Gay says hi she's fans of both of you as well
2: you <laughs> say hi right back
3: absolutely
2: you two are so amazing
1: together and
2: separate <laughs> all of it just everything that you all
1: do we follow everything thank you Glennon, I'd like to start by reading an excerpt from your latest book, Untamed, which, as of this interview, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 28 weeks. Congratulations. (laughs) That is quite a feat. Um, So I'd like to set a stage for what I'm about to read for our listeners. You're at a large librarian's dinner. With a group of other prominent authors, you are there to talk about the launch of your upcoming book, Love Warrior, which recounts your then, as I mentioned, husband's infidelity and subsequent attempts at reconciliation and forgiveness. And there you are at this dinner, sitting in your assigned seat, despite your talent for public speaking, you don't like small talk, and are sitting in your seat about to eat a salad. Here is the excerpt. As I'm reaching for dressing, the children's book lady looks over at the door. I look over, too. Suddenly, a woman is standing there where nothingness used to be. She takes up the entire doorway, the entire room, the entire universe. She has short hair, platinum on top, shaved on the sides. She is wearing a long trench coat, a red scarf, a warm half-smile, cool, steel confidence. She stands there for a moment, taking inventory of the room. I stare at her and then take inventory of my entire life. My whole being says, there she is. Then I lose control of my body. I stand up and open my arms wide. She looks over, cocks her head to the side, raises her eyebrows, smiles at me. "'Fuck, fuck, fuck. Why am I standing? Why are my arms open? Oh, my God, what am I doing?' I sit back down. She walks around the table and shakes hands with everyone. When she gets to me, I stand up again, turn around, face her. "'I'm Abby,' she says. I ask if I can hug her, because what if this is the only chance?' She smiles and opens her arms. Then, the smell that will become home to me, skin like powder and fabric softener blended with the wool of her coat and her cologne and something that smelled like air, like outdoors, like crisp sky, like a baby and a woman and a man and the whole world. The only seat left is at the far end of the table. So she walks away from me and sits down. Abby. Mm. My first question is to you. Thanks. <laughs> Tell us about your experience in that moment when you first met Glennon. What did you feel? What did you think? What did you experience with that hug? Tell us everything. Well, leading up to this event, uh, I usually like to
3: see who's going to be at the event, kind of pick out maybe the person that I'm going to want to talk to the most, right? And at the time, I was really struggling to figure out what I was gonna write in my book, and part of what Glenna's story, her backstory, was matching my current story at the time. So I kind of knew that there was maybe gonna be this person that I'd be able to connect with. And when I got into the room and she um, stood up, she didn't write this part in in the book, but she actually ended up bowing a little bit. So and nobody else stood up. So this is a this is like the most supreme awkward moment. In all of awkward moments, <laughs> and so because she stood up, it kind of forced my hand into having to walk around the whole table to her, because there I didn't I felt bad, right? Um, but as soon as I got to her, uh, there was something that was that was happening, and like, I and I couldn't pinpoint at the time. You know, she asked if we could hug. We hugged, and then I sat down, and then throughout the entire rest of the dinner. I just felt so annoyed that I was not sitting right next to her. Um, I felt curious about what the energy was happening. And then as the dinner went on, I, I, it, kept building, it kept building, and kept building. And then uh, we got literally about three or four minutes to walk from that back room to the dais, to the stage where we were going to go try to sell our books to the librarians <laughs> of America. And um, there was an energy between us that was definitely both ways. You know, she was many years sober. I was dealing with trying to get sober at the time. Uh, I was like a month sober. And so I thought maybe our relationship would be based in sobriety and that she was maybe going to mentor me through my early sobriety days. And then, you know, I heard her speak and that is what changed it all for me. Um, if you've ever heard Glennon speak, uh, it's hard not to fall in love with her
0: Mm -hmm. and
3: it's hard not to listen and cry and laugh within seconds. Um, so though that initial moment for me might not have been that there she is like she experienced, it definitely happened throughout the rest of that night. And I went home and I read love warrior. And it was funny because the way Love Warrior ends it's like a marriage redemption story. Like she figures it out with Craig in the end. And at the end, I was like, what? (laughs) I was so upset. I was like, it was like three o'clock in the morning and I like shut the book. And I was like, that can't be right. (laughs) You didn't say any of that on the stage.
1: It wasn't right.
3: It wasn't wasn't right. (laughs) So that was my experience.
1: Now... I know that the very next time you met in person, which was several months later, you had both untangled yourselves from your previous marriages so you could be together. Mm -hmm. But you did this before you even kissed for the first time. And so in reading Forward and reading um, Wolfpack and reading Untamed, there's, there's not a lot of detail in those months. So I'm wondering if you can share just a little bit about how you started to move to threading your lives together at that point. Yeah. Lennon?
2: So, well, the, the wild thing is not just we had never kissed, we had never been in the same room again. Right. Until we we both. we Until found, that hotel room, right? Right, right. right. Yeah. This isn't even in the book, but at the event, Abby had an assistant who was a dear friend. Abby's assistant was watching from, there was 1,000 librarians in the hall that we were in, and she was watching me speak, and she was watching Abby react to me speaking. So Abby was kind of tearing up and being very emotional. And her assistant understood that Abby was going through a very hard time at that point with sobriety. The assistant came up to me at the end of the event and handed me her card and said, I don't know what's happening tonight, but I've never seen Abby like this. And I just feel like she needs you in her life.
3: And this is unbeknownst to me. I have no idea that my assistant was doing this.
2: And I was stunned, but I was also like, well, that makes two of us, lady. I also (laughs) agree that I should be in Abby's life. (laughs) So Debbie, a a few days later, I was just stunned by this experience for days. A few days later, I wrote an email to Abby about sobriety, about my experience in early sobriety, and I sent it to the assistant because I didn't know in early sobriety, should I even be reaching out to her? I, I didn't know. I said, if you think that this is a good thing for her to read, send it to her. That's how we started emailing. So then the assistant sent it to Abby. Abby emailed me back. We ended up just writing to each other every single day, just writing, 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 writing. Eventually, Abby later on put together all of our emails in a book for me and tied it. It was just like inches and inches thick. So we fell in love through- just Two reams of paper. Yeah, we fell okay. in love through writing to each other. And you know, eventually I- understood that I was in love with her and I just felt I had been through infidelity. So I had been on the other side of that inside of a marriage. And at some point I realized, okay, I don't, I don't anymore believe that I owe this man the rest of my life, but I do think that I owe it to him and to myself to untangle myself before. It just was so what we had was felt so pure and beautiful that I felt like I can't F it up by doing anything that would in the long run feel icky to the family. Right. So we just had to just freaking decide on the phone, you know, and then I I sat down with Craig and said, I don't know if this is going to work out with her, but I do know that I can't anymore pretend that this is what I want. So regardless of whether it works out with Abby or not, I have to go. Yeah. And it's made more complicated because both
3: of us had, I mean, I lived in Portland, Oregon at the time. She lived in Naples. It's like, how do we do this without really even knowing for sure that this is going to work out, you know? So we both had to take big leaps of faith. um, And we both did thankfully. And the other side to this is the three kids, right. Mm -hmm. And Craig and how, beautifully he handled this situation you know when Glennon told him the first thing he said to her I mean basically it was a joke but it's true it's like oh is this what all the indigo girls is about
2: (laughs) right and I think that like I was like oh my god I think it might be and it just had a
3: really important tone for even though what could have been a really hard time like we were all we were both dealing with really hard things like we were both trying to in the best way we knew to extricate ourselves from our former lives so that we could create room for our, for each other
1: in reading untamed and forward the memoir that abby was at the librarian's dinner to promote i can see the intricacies of the threads that tie you together and the first thing i want to ask you about is control abby you state this in the forward Going right
3: into it i love it <laughs> <laughs>
1: You you state this. Uh, I'll admit some hard truths about myself. I know I'm a bit of a nightmare to live with, with my need for control constantly at odds, with my instinct to go with the flow. And Glennon, you write this in Untamed. I would say in my marriage with Abby, I have come to understand that I am a very controlling person. Okay, and before in my other relationships, I just thought I was a very good leader. (laughs) (gasps) <gasps> I relate, by the way, to both of you. <laughs> um, so, Glennon, what, before, before we get into the sort of nitty-gritty of control, I do want to ask you what you think the difference is between being controlling and being a good leader.
2: Mm. Okay. So, I believe that Abby is an excellent leader. And I think it's because she finds a way to trust the people she's leading. Okay. Mm. Abby has a trust in the universe. She has a trust that, you know, things will work out. Like, I don't even understand what that means. Like things don't work out. I work them, right? Like I make them work. And if I don't make them work, then nothing works. Like she believes in people and that allows her to uh, bring out the best in people, trust when an outcome happens that wasn't exactly her idea. I think that's leadership, right? I tend, I think the control thing comes with a lack of trust. Okay. So I actually, to my children, to my wife, I am here to help you make all of your dreams come true. So now I'm going to tell you what your dreams are. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because I just want, what I really want is just my best for you. (laughs) Okay. So, So it's a... Your version of best. Yes, yes. And that comes... Which is the best. I I will tell you what's the best and then we will all go for it, right? I think that the difference between leadership and control has something to do with trust.
1: Well, it's interesting because you've said that you think that a person can control people or love people, but you can't do both.
2: yeah. Yeah, I figured that out in a conversation. So one of the things that's really beautiful for me about being in a same-gender marriage is that... I mean, we, we talk about everything to the point where it's just like, well, it's ridiculous. Don't you think? It's ridiculous. So one day I was, you know, talking to her about something that I, sometimes I feel like I'm doing the um, thing where I'm just helping and I'm just leading, but Abby can see through that. She knows when I'm being manipulative and doing the controlling thing. So she stopped me one day and she said, Glennon, I can tell that you're trying to control me right now. And I just want you to know that that makes me really sad because I respect you and trust you so much. And when you do what you're doing right now, I can feel deeply that you just don't trust me. She was exactly right. So that's when I figured out, oh, I can love her or I can control her, but I can't do both because love requires this radical trust.
1: So we only try to control things that we don't trust then.
0: Hmm.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that that is correct. I also think that it's, you know, There's a fear factor. It's like based on, in some ways, how we've been brought up and the way that we see the world, and you have anxiety, and that sets a scene for you, Mm -hmm. right, in certain ways. So, though you might have some controlling tendencies, (laughs) I understand why you have them. And also, the hard part for those folks who are in control and successful is that they actually think and deem the success of their life is because of their control, right? right? And so that's why it's so hard to disassociate some of this need for control or perceived need for control because it's so closely tied in to the success of a person's life in some ways.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um,
3: maybe I'm wrong. Like that's true. Seriously. She could just be wrong, Debbie. I don't pretend yeah. to know everything. I just know I just know that my leadership technique is just different than yours. That is
1: correct. Well <laughs> <But it's laughs> I think It's interesting. I think that, you know, there have been times when I've had conversations with Roxanne about this and she's like, well, don't you trust me? And it's not a matter of not trusting her. It's Mm. a matter of not trusting myself in my life that anything bad could happen at any given time. And therefore I have to be on constant alert to make sure that nothing bad is going to happen and Mm. make sure everything stays exactly the same every single day. It's really exhausting, but I, I don't think it's about not trusting the other person because I, I do feel deeply trustful of that person's presence in my life and feelings. It's a matter of not trusting the world, they and therefore I have the to world. protect. Yes. This is to, this needs to be protected. Mm-hmm. So don't you feel like it's
2: actually a deep, like almost spiritual? It's like do some people believe that the world is on their side and oh, yes. things will work out, and that yes. everything happens for a reason? And some people don't believe that. <laughs> People believe that if the world stays together, it's because I worried enough. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And
3: and also it's a perceived, a perception of how in danger you are, right? Like for me, I'll go into, I know best mode when, when our lives are at stake, right? (laughs) So when I'm in fight or flight, like when I'm in that experience where I'm trying to make sure everybody gets out alive of some situation, like this is a situation where I got to go into that mode. There, I live there. That's where you live. I live. Yeah. That is where you live. Yeah. You think everything is is life and death. No, that's, and I yeah, I
2: mean, and that's anxiety, right? Like yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. how much of that is mental health stuff. I don't know, but I do live in fight or flight. But the very yeah. thing that
3: we could, in a marriage, say that is could be problematic, is the very thing that makes you one of the best activists on the planet, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. like, I don't know. I can take some. I can take some of it. If if you're saving the world
4: also.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get it. I There are times, and Abby, I think you might sort of find this to be incredulous, but there are times when I'm watching a sports game, you know, some sort of, whether it be a baseball game or a soccer game or a football game, and my team is losing, I have to leave the room because I think I'm the reason they're losing, <laughs> oh you know, God. has nothing to do with so the, the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So like, yeah. I remember a time when there was a blackout in New York and I was in Boston at the time. It was a big blackout and I remember thinking, oh, I'm so glad I'm not in New York at this time because I would have thought it was my blow dryer that did it or <laughs> So
2: That's Debbie, so it's like it's, it's, it's a worry thing but it's also
1: a grandiosity thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, it's right? narcissism, it's
2: absolutely. There's no
1: humility in it in thinking yeah. that you control the world, right? It's- or that I'm responsible for all the bad things in the world. It's not like if something good happens like there's a rainbow and I'm like, oh yay, it's cause I mean, never. Never. Well, never. good point. We take credit for none of the good stuff, but we take responsibility for all of the negative.
2: I think right.
3: part of why I'm able to see it kind of as it is, the way that I see it now, is because I have been in certain situations that I was one of the best players or on a, one of the best teams in the world, and things went wrong, and it was my fault, <laughs> right. and the world yeah. didn't end.
1: So sure yeah. really,
2: I have that. Fear. There's a lesson
1: there, Glenn. There <laughs> is, Debbie. Um, I was also struck by the notion in both of your books that you both have struggled with feeling like a fraud, which is something that I also struggle with nearly every day. In fact, Abby, you have an entire chapter dedicated to the feeling in Forward. And it's hard to imagine that the holder of the world record for international goals for both men and women soccer players could ever feel like a fraud, I mean that is tangible evidence. That's the really nice thing about sports and math is like tangible evidence. Two goals is more than one goal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's there's like a clear winner here. Yeah. Um, so so what do you both feel is the foundation of that fraudness or that fraudity, which is a word I've, I've made up, but like yeah.
3: I think that the higher you are able to climb a mountain the less stable your footing is. And I think that all people who achieve really high levels of success in in any way, I'm not talking about just monetarily, I'm talking about um, doing what they're wanting to be doing at the highest level. I think that it feels so daunting. I think all people who find themselves in that position have to look in the mirror and wonder, really? me? how do I do this? Right. Um, that doesn't mean that there is an equal amount of knowing that you deserve to be there and an understanding. I also think that women have a harder time believing that they deserve any kind of reward for their hard work because we've been kind of given a lie our whole lives that everything that we get is handed to us, not that we've earned it. So yeah, those, that's Mm -hmm. what I would say. What do you think?
2: Well, and also to be people who are leading, who are out there leading, and who have so many struggles, right? right? I mean, to be people who, yeah. you know, Abby is a person who is being, you know, called Captain America and, the, and also struggling mightily with alcoholism. And like, you know, I am a, a clinically depressed motivational speaker. <laughs> 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 it's not, it's tricky. It's just, it's tricky, right? When I talk about this concept, imposter syndrome, fraud, whatever you want to call it, it is so much more relevant and deep in my friends who are women than my friends who are who are not women. Yeah, and I and I do believe that that's because we have been, always been a part of a culture where men can lead and can fail, and men can lead and mm-hmm. can have problems, and men can, and that is never an issue. Mm-hmm. But we all, we live in a place where women are expected to be perfect mm. whatever that means Ugh. and so any woman who is in any particular place of of power or leadership who is also human feels scared about that and and it and it's not a wrong feeling <laughs> because women know inherently that the second they make a human mistake that the second their humanity comes to the forefront, they will be crucified for it, yeah, right? It's not made up, like that's what we do to women. We allow them to rise a little bit and then we take them down. So whenever people talk about this as like something we should just get over, I always think, well, I think it's something that we should study and know how to deal with, but I think it's legit
1: mm-hmm. for women. Yeah. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.
4: Hey y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In The Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. It'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and
1: Adobe Express for their support. Glennon, you came out when you fell in love with Abby, which means you came out around 40. Mm -hmm. I came out when I was 50, which was nine years ago. Um, and Abby, though you came out in college, you still struggled with it. You'd think by now it would be easier, but it still seems like something someone has to announce as opposed to just being that way. Um, it's interesting that people still feel the need to announce their sexuality when they're gay as opposed to when they're straight, you know? Mm-hmm. How do you feel, if, if at all, that the world has changed for young people coming out now?
3: Ugh. I love this question because I think it has changed drastically in 20 years. Um, our children, our oldest, he told us years ago, he's like, I understand the fight for LGBTQ rights, but really, like people my age, like they don't really care. Like just yeah. be you, love who you love, and like that's the end of the story. He said, That's a grown up problem. That's a grown up problem. <laughs> that's your own problem. <laughs> <Yeah. it." laughs> but we have come a far way. And the interesting dichotomy between Glennon and I is that I still have unlearning to do around it because I have internalized homophobia inside of me based on my upbringing, yeah. uh, being brought up Catholic, the fear of God or whatever <laughs> is inside of me, um, and Glennon just doesn't have that kind of shame. Mm. But I just think it's been such a beautiful thing to witness over the last twenty years. The the growth of our country, the, the rights that we now have, hopefully they're not, they won't be threatened over the coming years.
2: Uh, and I think there's more to it than just like, I just happened to not have shame and you did. Like, I think it's because we grew up and di- we came out in different times. So Abby and I were at the bank recently and the man handed us paperwork for us to sign to become part of this bank and right, he handed it to us. And at the top it said, husband and wife. And I just burst out laughing. I just said, dude, you have got to be freaking kidding me. We're at this big table. I said, look at this. You just handed us this paperwork that says to us (laughs) right here that we don't belong where you're trying to get like, man, are you out of your mind in 2020? Like, this is what I was saying to him. And so we worked it out. We talked to him about welcome to, you know, this century. And then we got back in the car and Abby was really quiet. And she said, Gordon, I I just, why is it always you that speaks out in those moments? She said, I looked at that paperwork. I noticed it and I wasn't going to say a thing. Why is it always you? And we talked about that so much. And here's what I think is the answer to that. It's because Abby knew she was gay as a kid. She grew up in a time where she was being told she was an abomination. She had people, she had stand screaming dyke at her from yeah. the, while she played on that. She, she dated every single one of her girlfriends knowing that she would never get married. Okay. She was used to being marginalized.
3: Mm.
2: I grew up. As a heterosexual, white, abled, thin, pretty enough, Christian girl and woman. Okay. I was, I am not used to being marginalized. It is shocking to me when it happens. Right. And so when that, when something like that happens to me, uh, my initial reaction is to burst out laughing and to say something. Right. Yeah. But Abby has grown up in a time where she's used to that. Oh Yeah right but i think that's what it is it's because we came out at different times and people like you who came out when the risk was so much higher are the people who earned the entitlement i come to the table with i love it for me i love it yeah
1: yeah i have to say that that Roxanne and i go through some very similar but but different types of scenarios because she's black mm-hmm. and because she's living in an unruly body um she gets I, I can't even begin to talk about, and that's really her story as well. But she gets so much discrimination, and I'm v- very similar, Glenn. And I see it, and I'm like, whoa, "Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what just happened here?" We were on a on a work trip last week, and we were checking into a hotel, and the hotel didn't seem to have our reservation, and um, looked at Roxanne very skeptically, mm. and I looked at him, and I'm like you sound skeptical about the reservation. Is there a problem here? And after, and I didn't think twice about it. I just said mm-hmm. what I said, cause he kind of gave us, you know, a bad vibe and I wasn't going to stand for it. And afterward, Roxanne said the same thing. Like I, I would never have said anything. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't have said anything. And I'm like, I'm the same way I'm used to a life of real privilege mm-hmm. as an able-bodied white woman living in New York city. Mm-hmm. And It's shocking to witness the amount of discrimination that I now see.
3: And that's why it's so important for those who haven't felt certain kinds of marginalizations in their life to speak up for those who are marginalized. Mm -hmm. Because this is the exact thing. It's like that moment would have been missed by this bank that if Glennon hadn't said something, that moment would have happened again to the next gay couple that walked in the door. Yeah. And had it not been for her, they changed their
2: whole policy. Now it's spouse, spouse, right? Or partner, uh-huh. or partner, partner, yeah. as it should be. Yeah. Well, it's just, in, in, in and then you think about, okay, so we are white, semi famous people. That shit's happening to us. Totally. Like, I'll, I talked to um, a friend after I had said something online about feeling not aligned with the born this way narrative. And there was a big to do about it. And, um, I had said something to her about my experience coming out and, and, the acceptance and the love and the, and she's, and I, and she said, well, you know, gayness, queerness at this moment is accepted and embraced for about 10 people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're one of them. Mm-hmm. Right. like an important point. But you, your experience is not the experience still of most queer kids in this country. And will be different for our son. Our son came out to us um, a few months ago or a year ago now. And just even thinking about his, he'll have a, just a different, it's. it's, Congratulations. Thank you. We were so happy. We got one. We got one. Well, you know, it
3: was, (laughs) it was such an interesting thing for me because I still have, like I said, this internalized homophobia inside of me. Oh, so do I. That when he told us my initial feeling was total fear. I was so scared for him. And what that moment did for me was heal so many childhood traumas around the way that I experienced coming out with my mom, that, yeah. that it made me understand that, oh, she wasn't afraid of me. She was afraid for me. For you. And that is a chasm wide difference. Mm. It made me see and understand the situation very differently. She's. She doesn't want me to have a hard harder
2: life. And that it is a harder life. Also, way better life.
1: Yeah. <laughs> way freaking better. Way better than you. I've been on both sides, I know. <laughs> uh, yes. Worth the hard. Um, you both write at length about your deep desire to be seen and how before meeting each other, you often felt like you weren't really truly being seen by anybody. So how have you opened yourselves up to being seen? Because I think that's a big struggle for a lot of people. Do you want to go first? No,
3: go. It's like, it's not about Glennon. The way in which Glennon loves me makes me feel not just seen, but held, right? Mm -hmm. So I have changed so much over the last four years, and it's because I feel like I keep turning into the person I believe Glennon sees me to be. Oh, that's so like one minute after another, and and that's just true, and and it guides me and it gives me comfort and love rather than like dread. Like, oh God, she's looking at me all the time. It's like no, it feels inspiring, and I think that that's like the big difference between any relationship I had before Glennon and now. Good luck answering whatever partner needs. Yeah, part you're damn,
2: answer. that was good. I guess, I guess, I um, you're really the only person that I'm not always trying to be better than I am. with. like, I just feel like I'm, you know, an anxious person, and I'm just always trying to be calm. That I'm a controlling person, and I'm always trying not to be. Like, I'll, I'll never forget the first time that I had—I would say—was kind of like a panic attack. Went in front of you. We were laying in bed and I just started this panic attack thing. And I was in the middle of it and I was so embarrassed and I was curled up in a ball in the bed. We made it through. You were just like holding me and we made it through. And then I said something like, I'm so sorry afterwards. And you said, Oh, that's like, that's just what happens to people who are as magic as you are. Like you're just feeling the universe so deeply. Like I wouldn't change these moments for anything. And I was like, Oh my. God, like I can literally have a panic attack with this woman and she thinks it's magic. Like there's nothing I can do to blow this up. This is, it was this ultimate feeling of safety because because I've dealt with mental health struggles my my whole life, I have this fear that like my shame fear is okay, I'm crazy, and eventually they'll figure it out and then it'll be over, right? So, to have that moment and have her see it as part of beauty and not even a departure from it. Yeah. Like,
3: yes, you are crazy. And that's why I love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like moving yeah. on.
2: Yeah. 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 I just don't feel like there's anything that is hiding that could be found out that will make you
0: love me less.
1: Glenn, you've written about how women are taught that the deep underlying belief about what we want is that if what we want hurts people, it must be bad and dangerous. And I was really thinking about this in relation to the dynamic between you and what you both do. And I I started to wonder about how that relates to sports. Mm -hmm. And Abby, I was wondering if that notion flies in the face of being a competitive athlete, demanding the ball and wanting to win. Does that ever come into conflict with wanting to be generous or wanting to give other people the opportunity to do well? Do you ever feel that you need to share that?
3: It's a really, really important question Mm -hmm. because the answer is and both, right? The answer is both things can be true at the same time that you want to win. You want to be the best that you can be. You want ambition. You want money, whatever it is, right? And you can also want it for the people to your right and left. You know, the time that I spent on the women's national team was so important, not just for me, but it's important for the world because they're trying to revolutionize how leadership can actually evolve and go out and be true in the world. So our women's national team, the way that it's it's built is to push each other. And by pushing each other, by not being afraid of competition, right, of competing, of of putting it all on the line, not being afraid of that allows you to make gains. So for instance, we'll go into a practice and we'll be we'll be competing, but we're not competing against each other. We're competing with each other. And that is a totally different ball game because when you're competing with each other, right? It gives me an opportunity. Alex Morgan scores a goal. I'm like, awesome, great job. It's forcing me to turn up my volume a little bit. Oh, this is where I gotta step up right? Mm-hmm. And most people in the world, they're like jealous. They look at that moment and they're like, oh, gosh, like she always scores. Why doesn't she give me the ball? Like all, all of these, like all of that is internal insecurity, right? So building leadership platforms of, of people who aren't afraid to put it all out in the line, to be secure enough in themselves that they don't have to find jealousy or or, oh, what are they getting that I'm not, right? It's like, oh, then just like figure it out yourself. Like Ava DuVernay said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you know we're trying to break through this glass ceiling uh, of a house that a man built. She's like, I'm just gonna be over here building my own house. That is what leadership is. And we need to encourage women and men alike to see each other and to witness their successes and not try to replicate them, but just like turn up your own volume a little bit.
1: Did you read um, Megan Rapinoe's piece about the WNBA yeah. and Sue and and her sense that this, this whole league is doing so much activism and we need to be paying attention to that? It really gave me the sense that we were all in this together somehow.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is a very true, important thing to note that the WNBA, WNBA. has been doing it has been saying the things, doing the things. They're living it, they're just living it. They are at the intersection of the sexuality, the race, the women, like they are the ones to be watching.
3: And us white folks have to check ourselves. Why aren't they as popular
2: as the national national national, national soccer team? Because they're not white. Yes. Yeah, it's who do we hold up to our children as heroes and why isn't it those women?
1: One of the things that I loved about preparing for this interview was seeing the commonalities in your lives, even before you met. Mm -hmm. Um, Another commonality you both share is sobriety. You've talked about that a little bit. Lennon, you've said this about the experience. You said, since I got sober, I've never been fine again, not for a single moment. I've been exhausted and terrified and angry. I've been overwhelmed and underwhelmed, depressed and anxious. I've been amazed and awed and delighted and overjoyed. I have been alive. Mm. And so I get the sense that you don't ever really want to be fine and want to sort of feel everything. Is that right?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's it's also a scenario in which you just decide what you can't have and then you just don't choose it. Like, I'm never going to be fine. Like, that is not my experience. You know, I yeah. uh, since, since I was a kid, I think this is why I ended up in addiction is that I had very high highs and low lows and I was a deeply sensitive kid and still am. And um, food just numbed that out until I found alcohol which was an even better stronger number and then all the other things so I think that you just figure out by the time you're 40 in your 40s hopefully that you are who you are and you're not going to change it so I'm not going to spend the rest of my life trying to be what calm (laughs) I'm not going to try to be calm or fine I'm just going to see that you know there are gifts in it, right? Like the sensitivity that led me into addiction is also the sensitivity that makes me a good artist. Yes, yeah. And the fire that I have, which anxiety, whatever, that makes me have hard times and it makes me sweaty and it makes me, but it also makes me a good activist. Mm, Right. So it's just, I think for me, it's a matter of working with what you have and figuring out that sometimes the thing that you've been told is your um, weakness your whole life is actually your strength.
1: Yeah, actually, something that you wrote in Untamed is something that really stopped me, and and I thought about it a lot. One thing that people seem most to avoid is heartbreak. Mm -hmm. In fact, I once had a student tell me he was afraid to pursue his dreams because if he failed, he would die of heartbreak. Mm -hmm. And yet you say heartbreak is not something to be avoided. It's something to pursue. Heartbreak is one of the greatest clues of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and I just wanted to ask if you can talk about in what way, how, how can we use our heartbreak to fuel our future? You know, my
2: job basically for the last 15 years has just been to listen deeply to women, right? That's what I do. And it feels to me like what women want the most is purpose and their people. They want purpose and connection. Pur- like, What if I die without finding my purpose? What if I die without ever finding my My people. Yeah. No. And what I'm feeling
1: my potential.
2: Yeah. 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 And what I notice about people who have found both is it's always people who have figured out what makes them angry, what makes them heartbroken, what makes them, it's like the thing they can't stand in the world. And then they stand there. Right what it, what is so unique about people is that what breaks everybody's heart is different right for some people it's animal rights and for some people it's hunger and for some people it's war and for some people it's racial injustice and for some and then what i find is that when people can sit with that and get curious about it instead of just hot potatoing it away when they can ask themselves okay where are the people in the world who are working to change this thing that breaks my heart and then they go towards the, those people they find their purpose and their people it's like in the very thing that we, we're so obsessed with happy In this culture, Mm. what makes me happy. Follow my bliss. Okay. Well, we don't investigate the more uncomfortable feelings because there's no bond. I know this because of my work with Together Rising and all of it. There's no bond that happens that is stronger than the bond that happens among people who are doing the same world changing work. You know, it's just in our culture, we don't teach people how to interrogate and get curious about discomfort, like envy is another one of those ones we all avoid and we feel ashamed of it. But what I have found is I'm only envious of the people who are doing the thing that I want
1: to do. Absolutely. I see it as an alarm bell. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Like Debbie, when I was drinking all the time, if somebody handed me a book that was written by a woman and it was beautiful, it would make me sick. It was like looking straight at the sun because there was a part of me that knew that a braver, healthier version of myself could
1: do that. Yeah. She did. I did it. And you did. I did
2: it. I did it. I did it. I did, I did
1: my best. <laughs> so I'm, I'm conscious of time. I have about another hour's worth of questions that I prepared to ask you, but I'm, I'm going to try to cull it down to two questions from the audience that they sent me from, from the Institute and the speaker series. And then I'll have one last question for you from me. So I'll ask those two questions first. This is from our audience for Glennon. I can imagine that throughout your life, you've experienced backlash and hate from some people. When you feel scared or unsure about sharing parts of your life with the world, where do you draw your courage from?
2: Mm. That's a beautiful question. Mm. So I have to say that the answer to that question is that I see all of life, whether it's my family life, my work life, I see everything through the lens of sobriety. Through the lens of recovery, okay. I spent the first well, from the ch- the time that I was ten to the time that I was twenty six, very very sick in addiction. And when I got sober, I learned from the people in those circles that the only way to stay healthy is to be ashamed of nothing, to be ashamed of no part of your humanity. And what I also learned in those circles when I listened is that we're all the freaking same, right? That there's no deep fear or deep anxiety or deep terrible thing I've done that a million other people haven't done, right? That the more personal we get, the more true we get, the more um, universal we are, right? Mm -hmm. So what I try to remember all the time is that I my one thing, my one thing in the world is not to be liked, right? It's not to be accepted. My one thing is to stay sober. And the way that I know how to stay sober is to not have secrets. And that doesn't mean not have any privacy, but it means to not keep anything inside me that feels dark and shameful, right? Because what I've learned is that over and over again, if I take that thing out into the light, a bunch of people say, Hey, me too. And then it's, a million yeah. times less scary. So, and the other thing, Debbie, that I know to be true for me is that I don't, when I look at women who are living out loud and to me doing important work, moving, moving us forward, every single one of them receives backlash and oh yeah, what we would call hate. So I would feel afraid if I stopped seeing any of that. <laughs> Right. I yep. would feel like I was no longer doing my job. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Like that's if you stop hearing any criticism, then you know that level up. Yes. Then nobody's <laughs>
1: yeah. really upset.
3: You gotta yeah, be upset amount of people. The right amount. You gotta right. upset the, the right, right
1: amount people. of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah that's- and this is a question for Abby. In what ways do you feel the sports world, both professional and collegiate athletics, can do more to support the mental health of their athletes?
3: Oh, gosh. I mean, everything. By doing anything? Yeah, by doing something. (laughs) You know, it's hard because they just focus on the physical, really. We had a sports psychologist that focused on team building, but never really harped in on the individual's mental health you know, just their, their overall mental health capabilities and whatnot. So for me, I think pro sports, I think sports in general, we have to make sure we remember that these like robots, these, <laughs> these humans that we're putting through all of these physical paces are people too. And it's a really tricky battle because, you know, we just watched this Michael Phelps documentary, uh, weight and Gold is what mm-hmm. I think it's what it's called, and essentially it's this whole documentary about Olympic athletes really suffering from mental illness and uh, mental difference, differences. And the truth is, is like you got to be a little bit loony <laughs> to do something like that for so long and to sacrifice your body and to sacrifice family time. Like there, there is a there is probably some truth to the fact that all pro athletes have a little bit of mental health stuff going on. So we have to actually dedicate some resources to destigmatizing the idea that you might be weak if in fact you do have some of these mental health stuff because I went through it towards the end of my career. I just wasn't prepared to retire mentally and financially, which caused some mental health stuff. Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? Like all the things. So I think that if I could give the sports world any advice, it would be to invest in resources for the mental health of of their athletes, because it will help long-term, right? Mm -hmm. You're gonna have fewer people committing suicide, Mm -hmm. you know. and and not to mention, sports are inherently dangerous. They're physically dangerous, right? And if you have any kind of head trauma involved in your Mm -hmm. sport, it's increasing the chances of some of those mental illnesses affecting that person later on in their lives. And we have to start talking about it with our children, right, like how did that feel? Right. Um, not brushing things other, under the rug, not saying like, oh, toughen up, yeah. toughen up, like, you know, Walk put some off. dirt on yeah. it. It's mm-hmm. like, no, like we actually have to, like, help our kids learn how to deal with the mental struggles uh, and the emotional struggles of, of being in a team environment or a sport. Yeah.
1: It's hard to imagine, given how many times humans get colds or, or even just sort of any random ailment to think that at some point in your life, you're not going to be affected by mental illness. It just doesn't seem even remotely possible to be able to avoid that. That's actually a really good point.
2: Well, it's silly. It's very silly. And I think, I think yeah. we're getting to the point where we understand that, you know, physical health isn't just for physically sick people. <laughs> we right. all, and mental health isn't just for mentally ill. Like we all have right. a mind. Yeah. Yeah. We should all learn to nurture and and take care of it. And we're all mentally different. Well, I don't like calling myself mentally ill. It feels like if I have have depression and anxiety, and and mentally ill makes it seem like I'm about to get better. (laughs) <laughs> i <laughs> am not debbie or you're I am not or you're really really sick right it's like right. i don't
3: know i think that we just have to come up with better language and you know, i agree i agree people so figure it out
1: Yeah, Debbie. okay figure it out. It we'll, we'll rebrand this <laughs> um so the last thing i want to talk to you about if you're willing is sex oh okay <laughs> wow. okay wow. um so, so, Glennon, this is what you wrote about sex pre abbey in Untamed. Sex in a marriage is like an oil change. You just have to keep doing it to keep things running smoothly. And later on, you go on to state that sex was a stage and I was the player. I knew how to be desired. I did not know desire. I knew how to be wanted. I did not know how to want. Then when you talked about this lack of joy with your ex-husband, your therapist asked you if you had tried giving him blowjobs instead. <laughs> um, she stated that many women found blowjobs to be less intimate. Um, you then promptly left the therapist. I did. I did. So, my question to you is this, and it's it's a really serious one, and one that that I I have personal interest in understanding. My question is, how did you learn desire? Mm. This
3: I want to know. Oh,
2: my
1: God.
3: I love that we're talking about this stuff.
1: I think
2: that I started to understand desire. I think that desire was what I felt during the there she is moment. Like, I think the thing woke up in me that was like, I want her. Hmm. Like, it wasn't like, I want her to want me, which is how I had always understood this situation of like how you right. partner up and how you, you just find somebody who's kind of like checks your boxes and then you try to get them to like you. And then whatever, it was a visceral, like I want her. And then when we, and then it just kept getting more and more intense. Oh my God. Well, especially all those
1: months uh, building oh up God. the anticipation. Oh, my God, you must've destroyed that hotel room.
2: Debbie, it was, so- so intense. It was so intense, and then in the the first, and this is making her crazy because she is so gets so embarrassed to talk about this stuff in public, not in private. Right, and she's. Uh, and I can't talk about it in
1: private, Debbie so weird. That's me, so interesting. Just, oh my God. That's so interesting. It's sad to me. Like, it's like, I'm embarrassed to talk
2: about it one-on-one. I don't know.
1: Anyway. Well, that's, that's the whole notion of, of asking about desire because there seems to be some shame in, in wanting things yes. and, and asking for what you want and, in engaging in that kind of pleasure. Yeah, It's a deep, deep rooted,
3: uh, something that all women have to deal with, right? Like going after what you want and being ambitious and
2: and saying it. And yeah. So, so then when the first time that we were together in the hotel room, it was the first time that desire completely took over and that I was not acting. I didn't even understand what sex was without acting, meaning Mm -hmm. that when I was, I'm so sorry. I'm going to say this. When I was having sex previously, which didn't happen, I, what I would say to myself was, okay, this is how I'm supposed to be. This is the, the noises I'm supposed to be making. This is how I'm supposed to be moving. This is how, what I should do or say or get it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and-
3: <laughs> moving on.
2: And then with Abby, and, and by the way, I'm just going to say this. To no! Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say this to Debbie because look at her. She's so fantastic. And I've just forgotten that there's like a lot of other people listening, but I think that since Abby was like the more experienced lesbian in the relationship, meaning she had any experience. <laughs> <laughs> I think we both assumed that when we finally got together in that hotel room, that she would be the like, Oh my God. I can't one I taking over. <laughs> and that was not the case. Abby. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Not the case That was surprising for you, huh? Yes. Okay. Now you go.
3: I don't know what the question was.
2: <laughs> oh yeah well, uh, you've never had an issue with that no years. i
3: always i i never bought into that the whole adam and eve fairy tale fable <laughs> that women aren't supposed to go after what they want i've always been of the mind that there's going to be things that are going to be harder because i'm a woman but i sure as hell i'm always going to go for what i want and then being in an environment like the women's national team, where you have—Do see
2: how you asked her about sex, and she's talking about the national team? So I'm a professional. you're yeah. note noted. Her- noted. She's going to soccer. Yeah. Okay. Well,
3: look—if you're around people, and the world tells you your whole life you shouldn't want this, you sh- you shouldn't mm-hmm. have this. Like, we just were like, whatever. We don't care if you're telling us we can't have what we want. We're going to go ahead and go build it anyway.
2: Yeah, that's true. Um,
3: and so that's what we did. And as it relates to sex, like. I definitely was surprised that you took more of a leadership role in
1: that way. <laughs> I um, love that. It. It's where we're going full circle here yes. in
3: so many ways.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh
3: but I also think that that was important for you. Yeah, it was. That was a truth and a reality that had to come to life to make this situation that we were getting into more real and truer and more beautiful. Yeah,
2: cuz it was like I want you. I'm going to go be, be led by my desire here and yes. not even let you, take over. Yeah. So interesting.
1: Yes. Oh, I love it. Mm -hmm. You are both such an extraordinary inspiration. Thank you so much for doing so much good in the world with your work, for sharing your ideas about love and power and sex. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for joining me today on this very special episode of Design Matters for the New York State Writers Institute and the University of Albany Speaker Series.
2: Thank you, Debbie. Seriously, thank you so much. What a dream this was. Your questions were beautiful.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Glennon Doyle's latest book is the number one New York Times bestselling, Untamed. And Abby Wambach's latest book is the number one New York Times bestseller, Wolfpack, How to Come Together, Unleash Our Power, and Change the Game. They also together run Together Rising, a nonprofit for women and children in crisis. You could read more about their work there at TogetherRising.org. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced for the TED Family of Podcasts by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.